0: Hi, welcome to the Tell Me What You're Proud Of podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maggie Perry. I'm a licensed psychologist with a doctorate degree in clinical psychology. I'm also the founder of the online group therapy platform, huddle.care. I love helping people overcome anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, mood disorders, and stress. Please join us each week as we share real sessions with actual clients that reveal helpful techniques for effectively dealing with anxiety, OCD, mood disorders, and stress. We'll discuss what effective therapy looks like, sounds like, and feels like. We'll follow our guests as they overcome their biggest fears and find that despite their biological vulnerabilities, they can still live a rich, full, and meaningful life. My therapeutic approach is strengths-based and seeks to find and reinforce what clients do well to help them generalize those skills towards areas where they're stuck. My model for psychotherapy can be summed up as this. You tell me what you're proud of and I'll help you become effective and happy Across all areas of your life. Thanks for listening, and let's get the show started. Hi, this is Dr. Maggie Perry with Tell Me What You're Proud Of. Today, we have uh, Ken Goodman on the show. He is an LCSW from UCLA that is in private practice in Los Angeles, specializing in anxiety and OCD. He is on the board of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, and he has a book coming out called The Emetophobia Manual. Thanks so much, Ken, for being on the show.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Happy to be here.
0: Great. So I know that you listened to the sessions I had with Danielle. Can you tell me what your impressions were?
1: Well, you know, she has certainly had a, a traumatic adolescence from, I think you said, maybe 10 to 20 with her mom having different kinds of medical issues and seizures and just having to be on pins and needles, waiting for the next thing to happen. She um, said something interesting when I was listening to, she said something about how she had nauseating fear. And I'm sort of wondering if she felt nauseous when she was experiencing all this anxiety while her mom was having seizures or whatever medical issues she was experiencing. Um, Because that is certainly tied in to what's going on now with her son Every time he seems to get sick and it seems as though anytime he gets sick, it just reactivates those traumas from when she was a child, when her mom was seriously ill and, you know, her son is having just normal child sicknesses, but it really triggers um, an exaggerated response for her as well as a, a, inability or a, a belief that she can't handle the situation when she really can. But I think a lot of times people with anxiety, they exaggerate risk and problems and they underestimate their abilities. She has the ability as a child. She, I'm sure, lacked that ability and wasn't sure what to do. But it seems like now um, it's sort of everything sort of reactivated with her with her son.
0: Well, can, can we talk a little bit about the relationship between trauma and OCD? Because she was saying in her history that she tried some different modalities of therapy that were more targeting the trauma of living with a parent with a chronic me- chronic medical illness, and they didn't seem to be as effective. So even if conceptually we do see the connection between the trauma of having nauseating fear whenever her mother was sick and her now fear of the feeling of nausea or the potential of her child getting sick. Um, how do, how does that inform like treatment if we conceptualize that as OCD?
1: Yeah. So it depends on, on how she experiences it currently. I don't know if she has intrusive memories of the past or not, or if she really doesn't think much about it. It's just more of a, subconscious experience for her. Um, I'll ask but going forward, um, she has to do more exposures to to help her get through it. But if she, if she does have intrusive memories of the past, then that would have to be addressed. I don't know what kind of treatment she had before seeing you. Sometimes what I'll have my patients too, who've had trauma in the past, that's really um, uh, manifesting itself in the present is I will have them write their trauma story down in the present in as much detail as they can and say, read it out loud many, many times just over and over and over. Um, and then I will can have I just, them,
0: um, interrupt yeah, you. why does it help to say it in the present?
1: Because you want to sort of activate those feelings again and and then learn how to respond to them differently. Because as a child, she was in the moment. She didn't know what to do. It was extremely traumatic. As an adult, um, I want her to desensitize to that experience and reading it out loud, which is very important, um, over and over will help desensitize. And then what I have patients do is I have them change change the story so the story kind of starts off the same maybe with her mom having a seizure and then her adult she writes about her adult self entering the scene and now it is a story made up of course between her child self and her adult self and her mom with her adult self providing um support encouragement reassurance anything she wants to include in that story and oftentimes just writing that story that that new ending can be very therapeutic and then reading that out loud several times
0: that's great thank you for that suggestion it sounds therapeutic
1: um Otherwise, I mean, if you if she's had intrusive memories, you know, working with someone who does EMDR, EMDR can be helpful as well. But if you don't have access to that type of therapist, this kind of intervention would work really well.
0: OK. And if she doesn't have intrusive memories, then.
1: And if it's more, um, you know, in the in the present tense with its, you know, maybe related to the past, Then it's but it's more of a present issue where you know her son gets sick or her son might be sick or she anticipates him getting sick. Then, I think what you were doing before when I listened to the session was really good when you had her say that statement. You know, I think it was my son might die or or something like that, and she had to put it into a song. And people with anxiety are giving way too much power to their thoughts. And when anytime someone has an anxiety disorder, there has to be some sort of exposure, like you're facing your fear. So if you have a fear of elevators, you eventually have to get on the elevator. You got to face your fear. But if the fear is death, well, you know, you're not going to die. So what do you have to do? You have to expose yourself to the thought, the thought of death. So I thought that was a good intervention um, to help her see that her thoughts don't have power and you could repeat these thoughts over and over and sort of desensitize to them. In addition to what you suggested, and Before then,
0: go, actually, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. To go on to the next thing. Yeah. Just for the listeners, I want to explain that a little bit more. So at least the way I think about it is that she has thought action fusion. So having the thought, my son might die, made her body feel as though it was occurring, that it, the threat was real. Um, and so doing something like turning it into a song is personifying it, it's making it humorous, um, but it's also, like you're saying, is getting her used to having the thought and then living with the possibility that she'll have those sensations and she needs to cope with those sensations. I think oftentimes when people are thinking about doing an exposure, they're thinking, well, I better get like an eight out of 10 in my anxiety or I'm not doing my exposure right and then I'm not going to get better. So with this kind of intervention in particular, although I feel this way towards all exposures, like you don't have to get anxious. So if she happens to start singing the song and think it's funny, um, that's still a great diffusion. Yeah, she doesn't have to get anxious to um, relate to those thoughts more effectively. And ultimately that's what we're trying to do is experience thoughts as thoughts and feelings as feelings rather than messages and threats.
1: That's right, that's very true in addition to singing a song, another way to create some distance is sometimes I'll have my patients verbalize their fear with an accent, like an English accent, or uh, it doesn't really matter, an Indian accent. And so when they say it in an accent, it really sort of feels like someone else's thought. And so it also creates some distance and it can be kind of humorous for them as well. So what you're trying to do is take this thought that they have taken so seriously and make it like, whatever, it's just a thought. It's not that big of a deal. And so saying it with an accent is good as well. I like that. Now, if she doesn't, once she can say that phrase and doesn't create an anxiety, she can, the next step up would be maybe writing a horror story about her worst fear. And her worst fear from what I was hearing was that she imagines her son getting sick, her son throwing up. She's not sure what to do and she does the wrong thing and then he dies. That's what I gather. So she would write a story about that where she does all the wrong things and in the end her son dies. Um, And then she reads that story out loud in her voice several times and then again in an accent. And she just keeps doing it until it's like, okay, this is ridiculous. This is just ridiculous. But when she first writes the story and she reads it out loud, it will probably elicit anxiety, maybe tears. It's not going to be pleasant, it's going to be very upsetting. But just keep doing it over and over. And eventually, it's just, it's not that upsetting. It's like, it just becomes a story. And that I think will help a lot with her fear that she's gonna do the wrong thing. Because she's really underestimating her ability. She seems like a very bright woman. And anytime, I mean, I'm a parent. I mean, anytime my child was sick, like, okay, well, do we take him to the doctor now? I don't know. Let's well, let's kinda see. I mean, everyone sort of struggles with that a little bit. Um, but I think she's um amplifying that fear
0: well it seems like she's um and many people are people that like when they get into the situation they're okay so if he's actually sick he's she's okay it's more like the persistent uncertainty that can just drive her and other people to like worry all day um so okay. do you have thoughts about so even if she gets to a point where she's Like, I don't, I'm not actually afraid if he's sick, because if he's sick, I'm going to handle it. If she can believe that, um, both in her mind and in her body, she may still, and I'll have to talk to her, but she may still persistently feel uncertain about what that will be like. Um, Does Mm -hmm. does that make sense to you?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she is every day dreading something, every day dreading that he's going to get sick just like her experience with her mom. And with her mom's case that happened on a frequent basis with her son, it doesn't happen as frequent and it's not nearly as horrific, but she's still sort of waiting. It's almost like a time bomb. I don't know when it's gonna happen. She knows it's gonna happen. At some point he's gonna throw up, at some point he's gonna get sick, but she doesn't know. And so she's not wanting that to happen. Well, the more she remains in that defensive posture where, okay, I don't want this to happen, the more anxious she's going to be. So you know, if we look at adrenaline and fight or flight, your choice is either flee and escape. And I think she even mentioned that when I was listening, she talked about when she was going through this, she just wanted to leave. She just wanted to escape. She had fantasies of just leaving home. So as fight or flight, you're either in escape mode or fight mode. You're gonna fight through it. And so it's either offense or defense. And she's just in a defense mode. And instead, every morning, what she can do is say, all right, let's go on offense, bring it on. All right, come on, sort of come on anxiety, bring on something, try to trick me, try to you know give my son some sort of symptom. Let's see, let's see. Now she's not going to want to say that. But again, it's just a thought. And whether she says it or not has no bearing on if he's going to get sick. So most of the time when she says all right come on give my son, son a tummy ache let's see what happens i'm going to handle it i can handle this and then day after day nothing will happen but one day something will happen and her son will get sick and hopefully at that moment she'll go okay now's my opportunity now it's showtime now i got to be now i'm going to be ready so instead of not wanting her son to be sick like okay i need some practice come on give him some sickness now Sounds silly because, of course, she doesn't want her son to get sick, but that thought has no bearing on whether he gets sick or not.
0: Mm-hmm. And so if she's afraid to be willing to to like be on the offense and and want that thought or want that to occur, then that would be another indication of thought-action fusion that we could work on.
1: Right. So anxiety, what anxiety likes to do is take your time away from you and scare you and it does that in two ways it does that by lying to you by distorting exaggerating outright lie and by uh, engaging you just engaging your attention that's that's really how anxiety tricks us and so if we understand what anxiety strategy is to lie to you and to engage you, then we can have a counter strategy, which is, okay, I'm not gonna believe the lie and I'm not going to engage. So the lie in her mind is that her son is going, she's not gonna be able to handle it and her son's gonna die. I mean, he is gonna get sick at some point, but her, the lie that she's experiencing is that she can't handle it and that he's gonna die. And then she engages with that thought. And the more she engages with it, the more anxious she becomes. So it's like her counter strategy needs to be, all right, I'm not gonna believe that. I have to refuse to believe that lie. And I have to refuse to engage in, in what am I gonna do? Like, cause I have a feeling that's kind of what she does. Okay, if you get sick, what am I gonna do? I have to plan this out. I got to figure this out. That's engagement. It might seem like she's being productive, sometimes productive. It seems like someone's being productive by planning. But actually, all you're doing is engaging with anxiety. There's nothing to plan. There's nothing to, if you get sick, you'll figure out what to do in the moment. You don't have to plan for that.
0: What if she just can't stop thinking about it?
1: Well, I think the exposures that I'm talking about, where she writes a horror story Will be helpful for that. And reading that out loud and reading it out loud with an accent um, will help for that. Um, You know, anxiety is a a strong emotion with a powerful voice. And her voice needs to rise up in intensity and then be a little bit stronger. Um, So if her voice is sort of meek, then it's gonna be harder. So if anxiety asks her a question like, oh, what if your son gets sick today? Or what kind of a day is it gonna be today? And then she needs to respond quickly and then turn away. So we're not trying to stop anxiety. We're not trying to stop that worry because we can't. But what we're trying to do is not engage with it. So she might say, thanks for sharing, have a nice day. And then turn away. And focus on something else and then five minutes later you know anxiety is going to ask another question you know thanks for sharing have a nice day and then you turn away or fake news not going there turn away or not taking the bait and if she wants to be strong she could say not taking the bait asshole and then turn away and it'll come back but that's okay but you're trying to rewire your brain to really not Engage because, like a fish in a lake, if you take that bait, you're caught. And once you go down, once you take that bait, once you engage with that thought, now you're going to get really anxious. And like now you're going down that rabbit hole. So I think she has to retrain her brain to not engage, including not plan what to do. And in fact, go on offense. Come on. Yeah, I want him to get sick. Of course she knows she doesn't want him to get sick but say it like come on i need some practice so next time he's sick i can then practice not reacting in the same way i normally react so let's go bring it on and have that sort of bring it on mindset instead of no i don't want that
0: okay all of that makes sense i think uh she's gonna ask and other people may be interested it seems like we're talking about primarily uncertainty and not, and her son being sick and it happens to be about throwing up, but it could be basically about any other illness. So how does what she experienced compare to emetophobia, like actually fearing vomiting as I understand it?
1: So sometimes people who, I mean... (laughs) When someone has a fear of vomiting, it doesn't necessarily mean they have a fear that they're gonna die from it. Most people don't, but some people do. I remember I'm working with a patient right now who developed emetophobia because as a child her his his um, mom had cancer and she was going through chemo and she was doing a lot of throwing up, and then a couple years later she died. And so he associates throwing up with death. So for him, he does think of death and other people do too but some but oftentimes people with the metaphobia don't think about death they just think it's disgusting it's horrific and um they and and they associate oftentimes there's an association with panic so not only are they experiencing nausea and they're but they're they're feeling extremely anxious. So the average person, when they feel nauseous, they don't want to feel nauseous and they don't want to throw up, but they don't tend to be anxious. But anytime someone with emetophobia feels nauseous or they have loose stools or they have some sort of physical symptom, anxiety is right there with it. And so there there then becomes a pattern of safety behaviors and avoidance where they stop eating And then they, because if there's nothing in their body, there's nothing to throw up. So they'll stop eating and then they get hunger pains and the hunger pains then are misinterpreted as, oh no, I'm going to throw up and feeling something in my stomachs. And they still, then they further don't eat, which, you know, compounds the problem. So yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure if I answered your question.
0: <laughs> no, it's okay. Yeah, that's you so I can see that that's kind of a different fear altogether than what Danielle's experiencing. Um Yeah,
1: because for Danielle it might not just just be him throwing up, it might be any sort of sickness that he has. You know? But it could be both. I mean, you could have the emetophobia as well as the fear of him dying. I mean, absolutely.
0: And so if someone maybe isn't doesn't stop eating because of fear of vomiting, but just in general is worried about that all the time, do you actually um, suggest that they, for instance, try to get themselves to throw up or eat something that they know is going to make them nauseous? Like what kind of exposures would somebody with the fear of vomiting do? Yeah, good
1: question. So I do not recommend they stick their finger down their throat or drink Ipecac or anything like that. You don't have to overcome phobia by doing that. I think it, it can be dangerous and it's not something that I recommend. Um, but there's plenty of other exposures that you can do and you need to do all the other ones. Um, and those exposures really depend on where your fear lies. And it could be as simple as for some people just saying the word vomit will cause anxiety. So for them, they just need to start saying words like vomit and barf and puke and all these things out loud in their home, away from their home, while they're eating. Other, um, I mean, there's a ton of exposures. Um, everything, if you have more of a fear of germs and food poisoning, it would be maybe eat something one day after the expiration date. Um, but again, for someone with a that may just be too much. So in that case, they're going to have, they're going to start off maybe by eating one bite of something the day before the, of the expiration date. I've had patients who have a fear of food, not being digested. And so after they eat, they won't leave their house for two hours until their food is digested. So working with a woman right now who will not drive, After she eats for a couple hours, and so I said, "Well, why don't you just, you know, eat a meal and then drive a block?" But that was too intense for her. So literally, it was taking one bite and then sitting in her car. That was it. That was enough just to start with, and then having one bite and driving ten feet, (laughs) and then and then it was. Now she's now she's at a point where she can eat a meal, and thrive, I think, like in her neighborhood. So she's getting a lot better with that. Um,
0: Yeah, one thing I just want to comment on while you're saying that is that the exposures are process-driven, not outcome-driven. So in that case, the reason that we want... like. It's great to do the smallest next step is because you want to meet your anxiety where it is and do whatever your body can tolerate in terms of getting anxiety going and then showing yourself you can handle it. So you wouldn't want to do the scariest thing you can think of, and which can potentially be traumatic to you. You want to do the next step and then get good at that and then move forward to the next hardest step.
1: Right. You don't want to do anything too difficult because that could trigger panic and be regressive. So I always tell people to start off creating some anxiety to practice responding differently to it. The whole, it's not just doing the exposure, it's doing it correctly. So in the metaphobia manual, I talk a lot about how to do exposures correctly with the correct mindset. Um, so you can practice responding differently when you do feel anxious. Yeah. So you want to have an offensive mindset and, um, The whole idea is to practice responding in a different way. So for instance, um, one of the exposures that I'll have people do is make, and again, we're starting off small, is making vomiting noises. You know, the sound of vomit. And then spitting into a sink, just putting water in your mouth and just spinning and then putting water in your mouth and then spitting into the sink, making noises, increasing the realism of those noises, and then moving on to other liquids and moving on to the toilet and things like that. Um, but when people do these, I mean, people are terrified to do these exposures. If you have a mitophobia, it's pretty terrifying to do it. So you wanna do it in the right way which is sort of a bring it on mindset. And I talk a lot about this in the book um, to to want what you don't want, like, all right, bring it on, bring on the nausea, I can handle it. And what people find is when they do that, there's a lot of anticipatory anxiety, but in the end they're like, oh, well, that wasn't so bad. It actually feels pretty good. Like they find that it it feels more empowering and when they do it the correct way. and uh, and the patients that I work with who have aminophobia um, find that doing those kinds of exposures are extremely helpful and that they really just stop fearing it so they don't have to stick their finger down their throat they just have to pretend to puke
0: okay and then what about if somebody um, has sensitivity to gagging and and kind of just dis- is afraid of anything that might make them feel disgusted because they might gag
1: so they're not afraid to throw up they're just they might gag yeah and then do they gag so if they gag so they do gag yeah um usually when people have that they don't want to gag and and unlike someone with emetophobia who does not throw up typically people with emetophobia never throw up they can go 10 years without throwing up, but they still have fear it every single day. But people with a fear of gagging often do gag. Like that's one of the the symptoms of anxiety is it it triggers a um, reflexive reaction to gag. Whereas someone with emetophobia they feel nauseous, but they don't throw up. So with the gagging you have to it's it's very hard but you have to stop trying to control it and you actually have to be okay with gagging so much so that you have to sort of accept it to the point where all right if i gag i gag so by reducing the fear of gagging you're going to actually reduce the likelihood that you're going to gag because it's sort of self-perpetuating where you fear gagging so much that you end up gagging. But if you stop caring about gagging, then you're going to gag a lot less. It'll just be, you know, it, you still might, but the frequency will be a lot less. But when you try to stop the gagging and or become afraid of it, then it's just going to happen all the time. So you purposely gag, like just, you know, you're going to go places where you might gag and Sarah, if I gag, I gag. And you see, and then you're going to work with the therapist who specializes in anxiety to see what to, where to go from there. But it's, it's very similar to other symptoms of anxiety, like racing heart or blushing or lightheadedness, you know, you you can't stop that. So instead you have to accept it. You just have to accept that those symptoms are going to exist and learn not to be afraid of those symptoms and to let them happen. That is really and, and really get to the, the root of it. Cause usually the people have a fear of lightheadedness or fear of passing out. People who get nauseous or fear of vomiting, um, the fear of gagging, I don't know, I don't I guess you have to find out is it a fear that they're gonna die? Is it a fear of embarrassment? Um, what, what I'm what thinking is of
0: is in the context of social anxiety,
1: yeah, yeah, that they're gonna be very embarrassed, yeah, it's very, very difficult to do that i mean work I did work with someone who had that and he was he actually gagged and he finally sought out treatment because he was doing law school interviews and he couldn't go to these interviews. Oh, and he would use safety behaviors. He would eat things to prevent the gagging, but he can't eat in the middle of an interview for law school. So he had to be okay with gagging.
0: Yeah. So um, just to comment on that, safety behaviors are things that people do to to try to prevent themselves from feeling anxious. And so when you're thinking about what kind of exposures you'd want to be doing, you're also looking for in what ways are you doing safety behaviors and refraining from doing the things that would, that typically prevent you from feeling anxious because they're going to then make you feel anxious, but then you're going to practice tolerating that uncertainty and that anxiety.
1: Right. So it's leaving the house without the mints or whatever you take with you to prevent, prevent yourself from gagging or Oftentimes people with a metaphobia will take water with them, or they'll there's a lot of things they might take with them. So it's learning how to go out without those. And again, you're doing it in small steps.
0: Yeah, all of that makes sense. Was there anything else you any other impressions that you were hoping to talk about?
1: Um, no, I think we covered a lot of it. She just has to maybe come up with a mantra and sort of get it into her head. Maybe for her, it would be something like, I will not exaggerate risk, and I will not underestimate my abilities. And just say it all day long, <laughs> so it gets in her head. So put it as a reminder on her phone, because she ha- she's just underestimating her abilities. I mean, that's not the only problem, but that's that's a piece of the puzzle. Because when it comes down to when her son has a problem, she'll be able to deal with it.
0: That sounds great. I totally agree. Thank you for your time.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you felt any benefit from the show, please let us know and share it with anyone you think would also find benefit. As a disclaimer, please consult your doctor or therapist before attempting any strategies shared here. Thank you.